0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode 22 in a series entitled Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. We are, in this series, going through uh, a period of American history that Is not unknown but there are aspects of it that are very unknown for instance I did a series on World War one which is in this period uh, and I've done a series on World War two and some of that is known like World War two for whatever reason as Americans we know more about World War two than most things like Hitler for instance I don't know why we know about Hitler but we seem to whereas World War one Hardly anyone in America knows anything about World War One and I ironically I even as I was going through it I almost wanted to ask the question of the audience, but I didn't want to shame anyone. Do you guys even know who won this war? (laughs) And it's such an odd thing to to realize that one of the most formative if not the most formative event in the last 100 years most most of us didn't even know about even though we know it took place And we know that maybe it was a bullet uh, shot from some unknown character to kill a guy named Franz Ferdinand that started it. You know, that's all you need to know to pass the test in in high school. And yet the dominoes that are going to fall because of that one bullet and that an entire world is going to engage in war. And it looked like Armageddon, guys. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, you are going to conclude that this actually is the end of the world. And it wasn't, I mean, here we are, uh, over a hundred years later, and yet the significance of that is going to move us from an old world into a new world. And if you study that time period, you're going to recognize that just right before World War I, the world was sort of what we would look at as old and old fashioned and old thinking and their value systems were, were different. They're the older value systems and we have moved into a modern era and this is at the threshold of it. And so in this period of time, we have a lot going on that is shaping the world in which we live today. World War I, of course, just being one of the catalysts. But we also have ideology, and we have a very strong movement to try and purge this country of an influence that is attempting to come in. Part of that influence is racial and the growth of, uh, or what we could say, almost the necessary growth of a, of a people group known as uh, black people to actually have full citizenship. And there's a fight against that. There's a concern that if they do have that, and they do have a vote, and if they do have a say, that there will be a retaliation against many crimes that have been committed against them. And so you see this embattlement in our culture and these racial tensions. There's also... The Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, which many of us are not very familiar with, but it is going to be the rise of the Soviet Union and communism, and a czarist uh, regime that had been in control of Russia for over 300 years is going to be toppled. And these radicals are going to take control of the most powerful nation on earth, which was Russia at the time, and it's going to be renamed the Soviet Union. And this is going to create the beginnings of what is known as the Red Scare. And so, throughout this time period, you're going to have these tensions of race here. Of course, in Nazi Germany, you're going to have tensions of race there. Racial tension is a huge issue over the past 100 years. And for those of us in the modern era, we don't quite understand it. When we look at Hitler and the way he treated the Jews, we are horrified. I mean, we can't even imagine. And yet, if The German looks at the Americans and how they treated the black people, they're horrified. And they cannot figure out how we could be so blind. And so these are issues that sometimes we can't see, and it can be helpful for us to drive them to the surface and say, God, I would really like to address this in my nation. Because the challenge we face is we're not the perpetrators of a lot of what has happened in the past 100 years. I mean, I didn't do it, right? But I'm the descendants of the perpetrators. And even if it wasn't my grandparents that did something, it's still my country. It's that which I care for. If, if I am you know, over this campus and someone on this campus you know, you know, dumps over something on the campus and a whole bunch of rock or you know, debris falls over and then they leave, well, guess what? I still have to pick it up. I can't just say, well, I didn't dump it over. It's still my responsibility to care for that which I'm entrusted And in a strange way, I'm entrusted with this country. I'm entrusted with the church in this country, as are you. Now, I know some of you are like, I'm not from this country. Well, praise God. However, you can still apply this to whichever country you come from. That there is a responsibility we want to take to say, okay, there's a kink in the hose, and that's why the grace is not flowing into this country. I want to help alleviate that and remove that kink so that the grace of God can freshly flow into this culture. All right, guys. Now, I didn't name this uh, the way I did to try and garner clicks. However, it is a very uh, unique uh, title that may garner some clicks, I have to admit. Now, I've had some very boring titles. Like even my Monday message, Being Jackie, was not a uh, click-worthy title. It was a good one, though, right? And so I'm not the one that plays that sort of game. This is very interesting to me because even the title, The Blonde Spy Queen, is very telling of even this storyline. Because the one who is described as the blonde spy queen is anything but blonde and glamorous. And my heart is for this woman in this story. And it's 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 very interesting. It's like I even as I was preparing this, and which has happened, I, I was preparing this message months ago. And it's just sort of been sitting in my docket, because, you know, it's 1948 when she's going to testify uh, and before uh, a certain division of Congress. And uh, this is a woman that is like, she is totally almost forgotten from history. Unless you happen to be one of those people that likes to dig deeper and know about things. But I really care about her, and she's long gone. She, she died in 1963. But it's like there's something about her storyline which makes my heart ache. And I realize that there are a whole bunch more like her right now in the world, and I want to be sensitized to that. And I want us to be sensitized to that. Because she got caught in the cultural machinery of her time, as many do. The blonde spy queen. So the blonde spy queen is anything but what you would expect. See, the media is very good at selling papers and magazines. And so they are going to term Elizabeth Bentley the blonde spy queen. And then when everyone goes to the court and everyone is like watching, you know, this in the news, they're thinking, what? Uh, She doesn't look very blonde to me. She's not blonde and she's not glamorous. So this is a description of Elizabeth Bentley from one of her fellow students at Vassar College. She was kind of a a sad sack, plain, dull, very teacher-like. She didn't have a single boyfriend, if I recall correctly, a pathetic person, really. Everyone that knew her just called her Bentley. She was a sad and lonely girl. Okay, I don't know how you're immediately responding. Now, there's supposed to be something in you as a believer in Christ, that is transformed, where you don't hear a description like that and then with disgust give a huff. Instead, there's something that changes inside of us where we have a a magnetic pull to the sad and lonely. And so I read that and I immediately am wanting to do something, but I can't. This is in the past. There's nothing I can do, right, other than tell you the story and say, but what can we do now? Is there a place to go when you have done something bad and you wish you hadn't? Is there a mercy place? This girl is gonna do something really bad. In fact, you could say at the time, it is probably the worst thing any American could ever do. Now, I don't know if you can get the hint of it just by the title, the blonde spy queen, I'm emphasizing the second word in there, spy queen, But she is going to be a traitor to our country. And is there a place? Here's here's my starter question. Because those of you that aren't big fans of traitors to our country, I get it. Okay, that's, that's a very unhealthy thing. And is there a place to go when you've done something bad? And yet, what if after you've done something bad, you really wish you hadn't done something bad? Is there a remedy? Is there something you can do? Or are you just sunk? Now if any of you have ever done something bad, you've had the same question go through your head. And maybe you never spied and were, you know, recruited by the communists to spy on their behalf and to, you know, give up American governmental secrets. But if you've ever done anything, you've had that question because the enemy wants to jump on your back and say there's no hope. It's called condemnation. There is no hope for you. You are rejected. There is no one that can give you mercy now. You have done the one thing that is unforgivable. The devil specializes in something known as condemnation. By the way, God specializes in something known as mercy. So in the Old Testament, you're going to see this concept of cities of refuge. It's very interesting because it's baked into God's very design of the land and how he is asking the people to cultivate their society. What an interesting concept that they are going to build into the very infrastructure of the society. These places called cities of refuge. They're places that a criminal, someone who has violated something and now has judgment coming against them, can actually go to and find a refuge, a safe place, a mercy space. Six of them are supplied in the land. Numbers 35.13 says, of the cities which you give, you shall have six Cities of refuge. Joshua 22 through 3 describes this. There's actually a lot that talks about this. I'm just giving you one little sample here. Speak to the children of Israel saying, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there. And they shall be for your refuge. They shall be for your refuge from the avenger of blood. America in 1945 so we're going back just a couple of years. We were in 1947 when uh, Jackie Robinson uh, took his first you know, bat, at bat, in the major leagues. And we're going back, but not really. We're just you know, filling in some gaps here. America in 1945, immediately following the war, there is something that is going to happen at the end of World War II. And that is that Stalin is not going to relinquish Eastern Europe like he promised that he was going to do. Instead, he's going to tighten his grip and say, mine. And he is going to state claim to territory that we as allies had an agreement on. And this is going to lead to a tension and a, a, a war of a different sort called the Cold War. And so the Cold War is going to actually emerge at the very conclusion of World War II. So we go from one war to another. It's a different sort of war, but many of us have grown up, or at least... You know, I grew up during the Cold War, and so it's very familiar to me. And in this time, at the very beginning of that, America in 1945, is there a refuge for the worst of criminals that wishes to amend her ways? Because imagine that you have been working for this empire known as the Soviet Union, and you have believed that they are seeking the best for humanity, that... The way that they are going is like superior to the capitalist system of America. And you have bought the ideology and so you have helped. You have aided and abetted. And then suddenly something awakens you to the fact that this is evil. Something awakens you to the fact that this is wrong. What do you do? If you, are, if you have been a spy for you know, what has now become the arch nemesis of America... At the end of this war because the tide has turned we were allies with them during the war so it didn't seem as bad and now suddenly the worst thing in America would be to be a communist and to be working for the communists and that's you if you're Elizabeth Bentley and so what do you do in a situation like that now the reason I'm creating that tension is because it's a very real tension and many of us deal with it even if it's not in that extreme of a way we deal with it in a small way Where we have begun a journey in the wrong direction, and we recognize that we don't want to continue to go in that direction. Is there hope? Is there mercy? Is there salvation? So in America in 1945, is there a refuge for the worst of criminals that wishes to amend her ways? This is a tricky one. Elizabeth Bentley has to make a choice, and I'm going to go into the backstory of this a little more, but... If she exposes her loyalties to the communist government, to the American government, the Soviets are going to want her dead. So if they even have a hint, they will kill. They they are very good at assassination at this time. 22,000 of their intelligence operatives are going to be killed in 1939 by themselves. They're going to kill 22,000 of them to purge out anything that might be disloyal. 22,000 spies. That is... An extraordinary number. Okay, that's just in 1939. They will kill you. Let me just make it clear. She knows that because she was an operative in 1939. And so how do you do this? Because if you go to the United States and you go to the FBI, which she is going to do, she has to trust that the FBI will not misuse this information against her. Do you remember what happened with uh, George Dash? Now, if you weren't here for those sessions, you'll understand that George Dash, a German who was working for the Nazis, is going to come to Hoover, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, and expose the entire plot of what the Germans are doing. He's going to get 30 years in prison. And it looked like he was going to get the death penalty. And he's tr- he actually is the one that exposed it all. And so is there a refuge, guys? Is there a way of actually switching sides? Can you go from the bad guys to the good guys? So remember George Dash. Now if you missed, uh, it was a message, I don't remember which number it was, but the Secrets of Room 5235 is the name of the message. It's a few back. It's a very interesting message. I would highly encourage you guys to hear that one. But there is going to be eight members, and two of them are actually American citizens, that are going to be working with the Nazis to actually sneak into this country and to, on July 4th, of 1942 blow up department stores that are owned by Jews, blow up bridges, just create disaster in America. And this is right after the Americans have joined the war. So the end of 1941 is when Pearl Harbor's bombs, this is July of 1942, that they have this sabotage plan. One of the leaders, the leader of it, his name is George Dash, and he is going to secretly come to the FBI and expose the plot. Not, They haven't done anything yet. They snuck onto the shores of America in in New York and Long Island, and they buried their explosives, and George Dash actually comes to the FBI to expose it. The FBI is in a very unique situation because this is right at this point where this fervor of American patriotism is rising because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover are going to become famous in and through the fact that they're going to capture these eight German spies. And six of them are going to get the electric chair. Remember, they didn't even do anything. Six of them are going to get the electric chair. One of them is going to get life from prison, and George Dash is going to get 30 years. But George Dash is not going to get any credit, because the FBI wants to give the persona that they did it. So George Dash is going to basically risk everything to expose it, and then he's overlooked by the FBI, okay? This isn't really a mercy place, is what I'll I'll say. So he sought a refuge and didn't find it. So there's George Dash. (coughs) Did he make a mistake? Yes. Was he making a good decision in working for Hitler? No, right? And to come to his own country and to blow up things? That was part of the plot. Now, he might say he never intended to do it, and you can't prove otherwise. But he shouldn't have been doing it in the first place, right? I mean, what was he going over to Berlin for to meet with them in the first place and then to be sent back? Bad decision, George. However, when you come to that place of repentance, what are you going to find? Now, it's very, very important for you to recognize that, you know, as I'm going through this, I'm going to show what you find in the kingdom of heaven. But as a nation, it's also critical that we are marked by the same mentality as heaven that if we don't create mercy space for someone who says, I've been going the wrong direction, then we're in trouble as a nation. So here's Beverly Gage in her book, G-Man, describing Dash and how Dash viewed how he was treated. So this is him looking for a mercy space. He's the one that exposed the entire plot. He risked everything to do it. It says, Dash later said that he viewed Hoover's actions during those final moments as an unconscionable form of betrayal. In the closing days of the commission hearings, he allegedly ran into Hoover in the corridor outside room 5235 and demanded an audience. Please, Mr. Hoover, just one more question. According to Dash, his plea was met with a slap from a nearby FBI agent, at which point he crumpled to the ground in pain and despair. FBI files tell a more subdued and more plausible version of the encounter in which Dash asked to meet with Hoover but was turned away. All agreed that Hoover refused to speak with Dash, turning his back on the man who had helped to make the FBI's greatest wartime case. All right, so I'm sensitizing you to the fact that I'm not exactly sure if you're a bad guy that you have a really good, safe place to come to in America. That's what I'm noticing as I'm studying all this. It's like, okay, if I was Elizabeth Bentley, where would I go? Now, she doesn't know about this story. In 1942, this was a cover-up by the FBI. She doesn't understand this, but this is a scary thing if you're the bad guy and you really would desire to be a good guy. So, should a government supply mercy space for the repentant? Now, that's a governmental level question. Now, since I derive my source and understanding of government from God, and I believe He is the one that gives authority, He is the sovereign that actually dis- disposes and, and delivers and, and medies out His strength and His authority, then I'm going to say, of course. You would want to build your government the way God builds his government. Wouldn't that just be wise? And that was the original thinking of our country, too. And so in our country, we do have a mercy space. We have a, a concept of appeal where you can make an appeal and actually have your case heard. There, is, there are certain things that have made our country very precious, and one of them is that we do create what we could call a mercy space. So if you, I have on the screen, remember the prodigal? So the prodigal is going to go in the wrong direction he is going to blow it guys he is going to do something that is unconscionable he is going to be in a home of love and of supply and he is going to selfishly take from that home and spend it on evil and then he wants to come home well you answer the question so how does god's kingdom work Is he going to just be a God of justice? A God that is saying, you blew it, you deserve everything you get. What is Jesus revealing about the nature of the kingdom of heaven? The nature of God is that he actually longs to have him come home, that that sinner, that one who is the traitor to the house, doesn't just long for it, but is looking for it, is desirous to make that amends, to actually create a space of safety so that that prodigal can actually return. Interesting thought. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you are unable or unwilling to give mercy, then you will receive no mercy. It's sort of like if you don't forgive, then God can't forgive you. You see, God forgives, but if you then clamp down and don't allow that forgiveness to flow through you, then it seems to create a repellent even around your life for the forgiveness and the mercy of God to land on you. And so it's critical that we are the very givers of this that we so need. We need mercy. I don't know if you figured that out in your life yet, but we need this. We may not be Elizabeth Bentley and George Dash, and maybe we haven't conspired to the level of destroying our country. But we, like them, need a remedy, and we need a mercy space. B did a no-no, the cry of the repentant. Now, that might not sound like the cry of the repentant to you, but when I was... uh, we were still living in our previous house. It's the house that Mike and Krista Hahn uh, live in now. We had a, a studio upstairs. It was a recording studio. It's where we, I wrote my, Leslie and I wrote books. And there was, it was above the garage. And there was like a stairwell down into the kitchen. And Leslie was in a, a meeting at the time. And I was working on something up in the office. And Hudson uh, was just a little munchkin. So we're talking like two or so. And he was asked very specifically not to get into the cabinets where the cereal was. Okay, you know how most cabinets are like kid-proofed? Something about that cabinet I think he could still get into. And it wasn't harmful stuff, he just wasn't supposed to do it, right? So the cereal was in there and he, he had a strange attraction to that uh, cabinet. And so the next thing you know, I'm, I'm working up there in the, in the studio and I hear this, didn't no no So B is Hudson, okay? He, when he was in the womb, we, didn't, we knew it was a boy, we cheated. And uh, we found out that it was a boy, so we didn't have a name for him. So he was called, uh, you know, Baby B, so for boy, right? So then even as he was growing up, he was known as B. And so he knew himself as B. I don't even think he knew his name was Hudson, right? He was just B. And so he's down in the kitchen. He's like, B didn't know, no. So I'm working. I just figured Leslie's gonna deal with whatever's going on down there. And he keeps saying it, B didn't know, no. And uh, so pretty soon, I realize and I, I hear his voice sort of coming up the stairs. So I, I come down the stairs, meet him halfway. He's looking up at me, and he goes, B did a no no." I go, "Be did a no no." Oh no, that's not good. What did Be do? And then he goes, "I fear." R- 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 and later, I <laughs> later I found out that he had gotten into the cereal. There's some Cheerios on the floor. You know, big crime scene uh, there. <laughs> but what was interesting is this little character knew what he ought to do, and then violated it. And he got into the cereal. And there was evidence everywhere, right? And he was then cut to the heart, recognizing that what he did was wrong. And he was crying out for some form of correction. You see, at this time, he needs, a little kid needs help to correct their soul. And that's what a parent does. A parent, by bringing correction actually frees the soul from that weight of guilt. And so that's why a parent's consistency in the discipline of their children is actually a gift of grace to a child. He did a no-no. I go, well, buddy, it's not a good thing to do a no-no. And he was he was in agreement. And here's what I noticed as a parent. I noticed that he was carrying the grief of his grave sin, right? And that As a parent, my goal is to help correct him, and I need him to know that what he did was wrong. That's the first thing you're looking for as a parent. And he already knew he was doing something wrong. So I said, do you need a a correction? And what I would do is I would flick the back of his hand. At that time, that was his correction. Uh, And he, he nodded. And so very gently, I flicked the back of his hand. And then he got a big smile on his face, and he was free. And one of the things that that has always taught me Is how the Father needs to correct us. He corrects us to the level that we are brought back into working order. If we are justifying, if we are excusing ourselves, it needs to be a more significant correction. Why? Because we need to be awakened to our wrong. If we're already awakened to our wrong, there is nothing grand that needs to take place because we are ready to live right. And that's repentance. And in that That spectrum of repentance, you know, if someone's saying, well, I know that that probably wasn't the best thing to do, but this is the reason I did it, and here's why I probably would do it again, whoa, that needs more attention. But when someone's here on the other side going, I am so sorry that I got into the cereal, and I will never do that again, but I never want to do a no-no again, and they're feeling the grief and the weight of their sin, well, then there isn't a lot more pain that needs to be inflicted. There is simply the motion of it, almost like the formality of it to say, all right, you're free. Thank you for acknowledging that. And so in that spectrum of our relationship with God, to recognize when someone is saying, I'd like to change, what I've done is wrong, it does not mean that in this natural realm there isn't a real consequence. There isn't a prison term or there isn't something that has to be paid back. It's not saying that. It's saying that their soul can be set free from something and recognize that they are not under condemnation. And that's the thing, that's the great gift that God desires to give us. The blonde spy queen, Elizabeth Bentley. She was a communist spy, a traitor to the U.S., a thief, a liar, a deceiver, and now a turncoat. I mean, it depends on how your value system works, but if you're loyal to someone like you commit to the communists and then you turn that's a turncoat too and so i mean from the american side we're like well that's a wise thing to do but from the other side she that's what she's feeling that she's a betrayer too of a confidence she's a betrayer of a loyalty but she doesn't trust them anymore she wants to get away from that so there's our blonde spy queen All right, do you do you understand that the media is indirectly mocking and trying to make a sensation out of something that isn't as sensational? Used and discarded by all. For the media, her story was a money-making sensation. It didn't make money for her, but it made a lot of money for the media. For the FBI, her testimony helped decode what's called the Venona cables. and I will explain that, as the, whether I, I do it a lot in this session, in upcoming episodes, too. That's going to be a big part of this uh, period. For the conservatives, her shocking testimony supplied confirmation for their concerns and justifications for the harsh treatment of any and all communists. Because the conservatives have a hunch, boy, this sounds familiar today, uh, that the communism is making its move and in infiltrating everything. And so the conservatives, for whatever reason, are very sensitive to that, whatever generation we're in. And this is proof. Did you hear her testimony? For the liberals, her contrived lies were proof that the conservatives would go to whatever measures to over-exaggerate a problem regarding the influence of communism in America. This one woman is going to be caught in the middle of this machinery. And I don't really care how you land on this, because we could debate uh, communism in American history over and over again. I mean, it's, it's been debated a lot. And there are things we know now that they didn't know then. So the good thing is we can actually look at the time and say, okay, here's what was actually happening. But there's a lot of emotion in this time period. And she's caught in the middle of it. So in the midst of all this, as she's being used and leveraged for all these political purposes and these media and these monetary purposes, no one cares about Elizabeth Bentley. And that's the part of the story I think that weighs on me, is there's another factor in here. You know, when I go back to that list and I say the media, the FBI, the conservatives, the liberals, the church. How does the church respond? Because we don't respond, we shouldn't respond as conservatives or as liberals, that isn't how we view Elizabeth Bentley. We see her as a soul in need. Our problem is we have a tendency to look at her through political lenses, and that's exactly what's going to happen to this poor girl. I'm going to call it the Black Mark or the Scarlet Letter. If you've ever read uh, the book The Scarlet Letter, it's I've, I had to read it in school. It's not one that I really would ever care to read again, but it is a mistake. There is a decision that this girl in a a Puritan uh, village is going to do and she is going to commit adultery and then she is going to have a scarlet A on her chest from that point forward. It's like she is forever marked by her sin and that will forever define her. And in the kingdom of heaven, we function so differently where yes, I may have done something wrong, but God will turn that even though I did it even willfully, God will turn that for good when I humble myself and when I repent and I come unto him. And this lady is going to carry a black mark. She's a spy. Later in her life, after this is all over, she is going to just try and get back into society. And so she finds, she's working at a, a girl's school. And this is like, what, 15, 20 years later, she's a good teacher. And then one of the students is going to see an advertisement about something that was like a documentary or something about the communist Red Scare. And they're gonna see their teacher's face and they're gonna hear what their teacher did and she's gonna lose her job. It's like, you can't recover from this. That's the point. Once you've done it, it's over. And there's something in that that is very common even today. I've watched this happen with even Christian leaders. If you're a Christian leader, and you misuse your platform, then you're gone. There's no hope of you ever having any influence again. And what's interesting is I could say, I get it. (laughs) I get the seriousness of it. That's not the problem. It's that these people are discarded. I could actually, if I'm not going to, but I could start listing names of men that have fallen in the last, let's say, 20 years. And they are treated almost like refuse in the church. They are a joke. They are a byword. And instead of recognizing that's a soul, like Elizabeth Bentley, that actually deserves our love. And very likely they are believers in Christ. And it wasn't just some great con job that they were doing, but they fumbled the ball. They made a mistake. And I'm not going to lessen the gravity of that any more than I would what Elizabeth Bentley did or what George Dash did. But how does God respond, and that's all I care about in this situation? What is God saying about this man? Has God discarded him? Because if God has discarded him, we have something to be concerned about in our own life, guys. The fact that his sin was publicly exposed is why he's treated that way. But what about the sin that isn't publicly exposed? You see, if God is discarding everyone that is going to fall short then every single one of us, in different ways, is vulnerable to a real condemnation. Which is why I'm bringing this up. It's not that I'm trying to defend bad behavior and bad decisions. It's that I want to emphasize the nature of God in relationship to that. So, the dubious authority or the defamed minister of truth. I have a special place in my heart for the minister of truth that has blown it. I really do. And it's strange, and it's inexplicable to me, and I've felt very alone. In fact, I've even tried to reach out, and I've been told, no, we're not going to give out his name and number. Sort of like, don't reach out to him, don't help him. Eric, I'm sure you mean well, don't involve yourself in this situation. Very odd types of things that I've run into, because I have a special burden in this exact area. So here's that quote from the fellow student at Vassar. She was kind of a sad sack, plain, dull, very teacher-like. She didn't have a single boyfriend. If I recall correctly, a pathetic person, really. Everyone that knew her just called her Bentley. She was a sad and lonely girl. You know what? That's right in the sights of the Church of Jesus Christ, right there. That's what we specialize in. We specialize in an Elizabeth Bentley. See, this. I don't care how the media handles Elizabeth Bentley, how the FBI handles Elizabeth Bentley, how the conservatives handle Elizabeth Bentley, or how the liberals handle Elizabeth Bentley. What I care about is how God does, because that's how the church does. And how the church, how God handles is the definition, is the roadmap, is the playbook for us. And so that's what I'm interested in. This is Bentley's lover. She obviously had a boyfriend uh, somewhere along the line. In 1949... He's going to testify about Elizabeth Bentley, and he's going to be—he's a controversial character in history, too. I have a whole bunch of controversial quotes just about to come up here that you're like, well, where does that come from? What's the source of that? Yeah, it's hard. When you get into these territories, it's highly political. Speaking of Bentley, she felt that she'd been used and abused. That was what she said. She wanted, as, the, as the quote continues, she wanted to just step out in front of traffic and just be hit and end it. She was so depressed, she had a massive alcohol problem. She, in fact, is going to die young because of her intake of alcohol. She can't drown out the pain. The three chairs, the three places of victory. I shared this with the guys uh, just on Wednesday. But if we set three chairs on the stage, in fact, I should probably do it inverse. Like, here's the first chair. Here's another chair, okay, and here's the third chair. So I'm moving left to right, if you're getting this via podcast. And I'm going to describe these as places of victory. In the kingdom of heaven, there is something we are being built for, and that is what we call chair one. Chair one is when the temptation comes, the invitation by the communists, the baits, whatever it is, to actually soil our conscience, to soil the purpose that God has for us. When that comes, we repel it. And we stiff arm it and we say, no. And we're like, yeah, go, Christian. That is a supernatural work of grace. And that is what God is building in us. And so we could say, yes, like that. And when I preach, I'm teaching you to go in that direction. I want to equip you with the tools to be in this place of victory. Because it is. It's going to reveal the glory of God when you're in this seat. But there's another seat in fact, I shared with you two more. And I call this sort of like the, the Jonah seat, the second one, where you know what is right, and you know what God wants you to do, but then you hear that you're supposed to take the, uh, the message of God, uh, the message of repentance to the Ninevites, and you don't really want to do it. And you get this, sh- this uh, ticket to a sh- uh, for a ship that's headed to Tarshish, and you get on it. In other words, you're actually headed in the wrong direction. Exactly opposite of the direction God has assigned you to go. I'm going to call this a place of victory. Not because you made a good decision, but because in the midst of that decision, you decide you actually don't want to go to Tarshish. You see, it's, it's really hard. I mean, I'm, I don't want to teach you how to get on the ship to Tarshish. I don't want to applaud that and say, hey, this, you know, did you see Jonah? What a great model that is. No, it's a very bad model, okay? And yet, this can be a place of victory if you arrest the downward spiral and you say, the problem is me, guys. I'm headed in the wrong direction. I'm in disobedience right now. And I am changing direction. And when you do, at any point, even though you're headed in the wrong direction, if you change direction, there is a mercy place for you. And God can turn even your dumb move into a place of victory. I have a story in my life, and many of you have heard it of you know having some kind of temptation in the downstairs area of the house. This is a long time ago. And I'm baited in the middle of the night and I get up and I've always followed through. If there was a temptation, I'd never been able to say no once I got up. Once I activated my response to that sin, it always took over. And now at the top of the stairs, I grabbed a hold of the banister and I go, God, I don't know how this works, but I am so tired of going down and you know whatever that was. I'm so tired of this behavior. Please, I am not letting go of this banister until I figure out how you give me strength to say no. And I ended up going to bed that night without going downstairs. It's the first time I'd ever seen an interruption to my trip to Tarshish. And it became a place of victory in my life. And yet it wasn't a place of victory for me to get out of bed and walk down that hall. No, that wasn't good. But it became a triumph when I stopped and repented and called out to God. So even though I got on the ship, it can become a place of victory when I halt and I repent. So did you guys notice the first two chairs? The first chair is, I don't go anywhere. And we're like, yeah, that's the way you should do it. And you'd be right. That's the way God intends us to do it. But what if we get on the ship? And we start heading in the wrong direction. Is it hopeless? Because most of us have never stopped. Once we get on the ship, the enemy has convinced us we have to go all the way to the third chair. And yet I want you to know you do not need to go all the way to the third chair, that you can interrupt that downward spiral of sin by the power of God's grace, and it turns into a place of victory. Now, if you caught my verbiage at the very beginning, I said that there are three places of victory. And it is very hard to imagine how this third chair can be a place of victory. This is all the way to Tarshish, guys. Talk about blowing it. Talk about making a mistake. That's like being George Dash and joining the, uh, the Nazis to blow up things in America. That's like being Elizabeth Bentley and taking microfilm and sticking it in your purse and, you know, stowing it away so you can betray American secrets to the communists. This is bad stuff. And you'd be right. It is. This is opposite the intention of God for your life. This is harmful to your soul and to the souls around you. But what if you're here? What if you're in this seat? I just called it, even though you may not have caught it, a place of victory. Now, it's not a place of victory because you're there. It's a place of victory based on what you do when you're there. The enemy says you're a goner. The enemy says God doesn't love you. The enemy's gonna say you're rejected. How could you do that? You call yourself a Christian and yet look at you. And yet what does God say? God says my mercy is available to you right now. Please repent. Take my hand and I will turn even this into a triumph in your life. That third chair can and will be a victory if you humble yourself if you come to that mercy place known as Jesus Christ you will find that even that can be a victory now what's funny is it's not like I'm encouraging you to do that there is nothing good about that but it's the same thing Paul is going to say where he is going in fact I think I have the scripture here Romans five twenty, and then verse, chapter 6 verses 1 through 2 where sin abounded grace abounded much more sin is abounding in this third chair guys and yet in that place grace abounds even more if you will humble yourself if you will repent there is always a place in god's kingdom what shall we say then says paul shall we continue in sin that grace may abound i mean if god's going to give grace when i come to the third seat maybe i should always go to the third seat should we always go to the third seat asked paul and he says certainly not How shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? God, if he ever gives you grace in this third seat, guess what? It's very, very precious. And you never want to go back to that third seat again. And that's a show and a sign of life in your soul that you don't want to return to vomit. But if you ever find yourself lapping up vomit, praise God that his sin, that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You need to know that. Some of you need to know that. Some of those listening to the podcast need to know that even though you're headed in a wrong direction, there is grace right now to interrupt that, to intersect that, and to turn this very situation into a triumph. And if you are wallowing in the mud right now, there is grace to actually remedy that and redeem the circumstance and bring victory out of what looks like absolute defeat. And that is God's way. Because God will take a George Dash and an Elizabeth Bentley that is humble and repentant, and he will give them grace. So the background, we'll call it the Red Scare. I don't know if you've ever heard the term the Red Scare, but that's the term in history for it. Uh, when communism looked like it was taking over uh, the country, the color of communism is red. That's all of their uh, memorabilia, all their flags, everything's red. So history.com, which has some, you know... Sketchy perspectives as I read through this you you'll, you might be able to pick up on those on March 21st 1947 President Harry S Truman issued executive order 9835 Also known as the loyalty order which mandated that all federal employees be analyzed to determine whether they were sufficiently loyal to the government This is unprecedented in American history guys that we actually have a loyalty order because of the concern about communism We're gonna be literally testing everyone to see if they're loyal. Truman's loyalty program was a startling development for a country that prized the concepts of personal liberty and freedom of political organization. Yet it was only one of many questionable activities that occurred during the period of anti-communist hysteria known as the Red Scare. Now, you can see just by calling it hysteria, that is a, a statement, it's a certain spin. And I'm not going to say that there wasn't hysteria, but there really was a problem. And whether anyone wants to acknowledge it or not, history has borne out the fact that we had a mass infiltration of our government with communists, communist spies. History.com says this, public concerns about communism were heightened by international events. In 1949, the Soviet Union successfully tested a nuclear bomb. So how do we feel as Americans, knowing that our secrets of the Manhattan Project and our nuclear bomb have actually been stolen by communist spies that are in, in our government and they handed them over to the Soviets and now they actually have successfully tested a nuclear bomb. Our enemy has nuclear power now. This is, of course, starting this grand drama that we're going to have over the past you know, 75 uh, years. So they were going to successfully test a nuclear bomb, and communist forces led by Mao Zedong took control of China. The following year saw the start of the Korean War, which is going to go through 1950 through 1953, which engaged U.S. troops in combat against the communist-supported forces of North Korea. The advances of communism around the world convinced many U.S. citizens that there was a real danger of Reds taking over their own country. So you could call it hysteria, and like I said, for some it is hysteria. You could also just look at it factually and say, we have a real issue in this country. Because there is an ideology that is creeping in, and it's creeping in a lot of times through the intellectual uh, channels, uh, the educational system. A lot of those that think of themselves as very smart are very attracted to this new ideology. And this ideology, if you're a Christian, you're going to recognize at its very root is an anti-godness. And so this isn't just a neutral, just a different philosophy of government, like, oh, we could approach it this way instead of this way. This is a different approach to life. An entire worldview shift. And so our conservative Judeo-Christian nation is definitely struggling with this. And when someone like Elizabeth Bentley comes forward and shows 80 names in the government, deeply embedded, that are actually passing on U.S. secrets, how is that going to be responded to? History.com says, as the Red Scare intensified, its political climate turned increasingly conservative. Elected officials from both major parties sought to portray themselves as staunch anti-communists and few people dared to criticize the questionable tactics used to persecute suspected radicals. Now, if I read that in a modern translation in the year 2020, you're going to realize that just as anti-communism was sort of the political correctness, even though not everyone was anti-communist. The same thing can happen in a culture where it flips and where it says the Red Scare intensified its political climate turned increasingly conservative. There's certain things in our culture that have turned increasingly liberal and everyone just sort of goes along and doesn't say anything. Very similar thing that's happening here, but it's the anti-communist and it's a conservative movement. Membership in leftist groups dropped as it became clear that such associations could lead to serious consequences. And dissenting voices from the left side of the political spectrum fell silent on a range of important issues. And I would say today there are voices on the right side of the issues that are going silent because they are so politically incorrect. And so these are just swings in culture. This was a very conservative movement. It was very unhealthy, by the way. And when you go to an extreme liberal movement and you have both sides no longer equally represented, you end up with the same odd dynamic where you can have a certain lunacy lead the pack. So uh, in judicial affairs, for example, support for free speech and other civil liberties eroded significantly. This trend was symbolized in the 1951 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Dennis versus United States, which said, listen to this, which said that the free speech rights of accused communists could be restricted because their actions presented a clear and present danger to the government. I get it. I really do. But it's interesting because we are going to take heightened efforts that if you have an ideology, you no longer have free speech. And so we are doing something in our country that is unprecedented because of this movement. The Blonde Spy Queen, The Outrageous Story. Michael Warner from CIA.gov uh, says, The outlines of Bentley's story have long been clear. She flirted with Italian fascism after graduating from Vassar, and then during the Depression, drifted into the Communist Party in espionage. For years, she met with spies in New York and Washington, occasionally stuffing her knitting bag with, bag with rolls of microfilm. Her story is a lot more complex, and we could I'm not going to go into it. Okay, I'm just giving you summary uh, points of this. Michael Warner continues, he says, the NKVD, that is the uh, communist arm, the the espionage arm here in America, uh, dubbed her Umnitsa, smart girl, and eventually tried to take over her network. Frightened and angered by her Soviet bosses, in 1945, she went to the FBI. It's a little more complex than that, but for your sake, that's probably good enough. The blonde spy queen wants out. But word on the street is you can't get out once you're in. This is how a lot of people feel when they're walking in sin and they recognize that they have violated the law of God. The enemy wants to convince them that there is condemnation and that's all you can get. That's not true. And this really bothers me. This whole thing like once in the mob, you can't get out of the mob. This, this, This is raining in America at this time. Once a communist spy, you'll always be considered a communist spy. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I know that seems like sort of a random thing to throw in here. But I'm going to explain what it means to be cursed. To hang on a tree or to be cursed means you are set not on the ground and you're not in the heavens, you're hanging between the two. So you are rejected simultaneously by both heaven and earth. It's a curse. And there is nothing worse than to be accursed, guys. That means earth rejects you and heaven rejects you you're accursed. It's okay to gulp. And by the way, every single one of us deserves to be accursed. Shocking statement there. It's not just Elizabeth Bentley and George Dash that deserve to be accursed for what they did. Actually, according to the scriptures, all of us do. Michael Warner says, Elizabeth Bentley spent her last years as a near recluse in rented rooms in Connecticut. She died at age 54 of an abdominal cancer that was probably exacerbated by her drinking, and only a handful of relatives and FBI agents attended her funeral. Her lonely end was little noticed in the press and mostly welcomed there. And my heart goes out to this woman. Now, I can't do much to intervene in Elizabeth Bentley's story, but... What if I were to recognize that Elizabeth Bentley is just one of many, 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 many that are caught in machinery of our culture, that are playing a role or saying the right thing and just trying to survive, and they don't have the hope that lies within me? What could I do to change that? To be a communist spy in America in 1948 is to hang helplessly between the right and the left with no hope of being accepted by either. She is rejected by both both sides think she is dirt. The communists want or I'm sorry the conservatives want to use her for her testimony so that they can prove their point and the liberals just want to call her a neurotic liar. That's a term that they're going to use for decades. This lady is sharing things that are so shocking half the country believes she is making it up. The other half desperately wants it to be true so that they can justify violence against these traitorous reds and root them out of their hiding places. But all of America thinks she Is despicable and that's where my heart comes in because I'm like okay guys this isn't political for me I'm looking at a woman who is in desperate need of hope and truth until her death in 1963 many people considered her a neurotic liar there's reason for that guys there's reasons why the liberals are going to clamp down on that and say she made all of this up there really isn't a communist infiltration Michael Warner says it this way. FBI agents used her information to mount a massive 18-month effort against the Soviet-American contacts she named. That project bored an amazing number of dry holes. Everything she said... This is what's interesting. I'm going to explain it from two sides. The FBI knew she was telling the truth, and there's a reason for that, and it's called the Venona Project. But the FBI didn't want to expose the Venona Project and say that they actually knew she was telling the truth because that would tell the Soviet Union that they had actually... Uh, A way of decrypting their cables. And so the FBI wouldn't say anything. Meanwhile, every bit of evidence that she gave could not be proven. So not one person actually was convicted or was discovered. And so there's a whole side of the political ledger that's going to say, she's lying. There is no evidence here. This is where the tension comes in. She's stuck in the middle and in this apparatus, this machinery, and she is rejected by both sides. Was Elizabeth Bentley lying? Was she simply craving attention? That was the big statement back then that she puts all her makeup on. She's just never been loved by anyone. She wants someone to care about her. That was the the statement about her. This woman, the FBI knew it at the time, is telling the truth. And she's risking her life to give up this information. She wants to change direction. She's giving America what America needs to rescue America. And she is roundly rejected by the whole system as a liar there's a reason for why her evidence is not going to be proven out Michael Warner says we now have the threads tied together sufficiently to explain why Bentley's charges were both substantially correct and almost entirely unsubstantiated by any positive evidence until the declassification of the Venona cables in 1995 so that's not that long ago guys this is way back in 1945 when she's going to testify and so it's going to be 50 years uh, before it's actually proven that what she was saying was true. And she's long gone. There's a British double agent, which I'm not going to go into. I'm not going to show you a picture because that's for a future episode. Kim Philby is actually one of those favorite subjects in this time period. So I'm going to reserve the right to talk about Kim Philby uh, in the near future. It's a guy, by the way, a British spy, one of the lead uh, guys in MI6 in, uh, in the British spy network. Very interesting story. John Simkin says this, J. Edgar Hoover, he's the director of the FBI, attempted to keep Bentley's defection a secret. The plan was for her to burrow back into the Soviet underground in America in order to get evidence against dozens of spies. However, it was Hoover's decision to tell William Stevenson, the head of head, (laughs) the head of the British security coordination about Bentley. That resulted in the Soviets becoming aware of her defection because Stevenson is going to tell Kim Philby. Kim Philby is the last guy on earth you'd ever expect to be a communist spy. I I, I don't want to give any more away. Stevenson is going to tell Kim Philby, and on the 20th of November 1945, Philby informed the NKVD, which is the communist branch, of her betrayal. On 23rd November, Moscow sent a message to all station chiefs to cease immediately their connection with all persons known to Bentley in our work and to warn the agents about Bentley's betrayal. So that means all the evidence and all the things. She's like, if you follow this person, you're going to see this. If you go to this person, you're going to see this. They all stopped because they all knew because of Kim Philby. And so this poor lady has the Soviets on her back wanting to assassinate her. And she has an entire nation that is rejecting her, saying she's a liar. She just is looking for attention. Okay. I don't know if you guys feel it. I have a little compassion here. She doesn't have a refuge. She doesn't have a city of refuge to go to. The media circus, in July of 1948, she's going to testify, and it's a huge deal. Michael Warner says, When the leads when the leads that Bentley provided petered out in 1948, congressional investigators called her to Washington for public testimony that was breathlessly reported by the national media. Reporters incongru- incongruously called her the blonde spy queen. She was neither blonde nor glamorous, as several reporters quickly noted. It also led congressmen to seek testimony from a corroborating witness, Whitaker Chambers. Uh, Again, another sub-story. I'm not going to go into it. That's why I put dot, dot, dot. I'm not going to give anything away. You guys think I'm I'm a sucker for that? The Venona Project. So this is the decoding, the decrypting of cables from the Soviet Union. You see, we are working together as allies, but they're spying on us the whole time, and we're going to discover that. And we're going to be able to decrypt their cables, and we're going to be on to them. But Hoover doesn't want them to know we're onto them, which is why Bentley becomes a sacrificial lamb. So it's a super secret portal into the elaborate scheme of Soviet espionage in the U.S. Michael Warner says Bentley's clues were key to the early success of Venona. So you know why Venona succeeded? Bentley. She confirmed it all. It proved that they had the truth and that they had been able to decrypt properly. For the Bureau, Venona became a priceless window into Soviet espionage when it corroborated her, rather than vice versa. They couldn't corroborate her, but she corroborated Venona. It was also through Bentley that the Bureau finally realized that the Soviets had built an underground apparatus in the United States that was operating almost completely apart from the Soviet diplomats that Bureau agents had been tailing. The the FBI is following the Soviet diplomats. But there's this elaborate system that they didn't know about, and Bentley is going to expose it. It's going to match with Venona. They're going to put it all together and actually know exactly what is happening, but they don't tell anyone until 1995. So Bentley, again, caught in the machinery, desirous to repent, and rejected by all. Michael Warner says this, the espionage campaign in which Bentley participated has to rank as one of the most formidable conspiracies ever launched on American soil. Soviet military and party intelligence organs with copious support from the Communist Party of the United States Penetrated many corners of America's government military and industrial establishments both before and during World War II. The take was enormous ranging from gossip about new dealers and military data to the details of the super secret Manhattan project to build an atomic bomb This apparatus that she is going to expose is actually tearing our, our country apart It's going to lead to the Cold War. It is going to empower the Soviet Union The least of these, those for which Jesus has a special care. Now, you guys know this scripture, Matthew 25, 40, Jesus speaking. And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, in as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, I want you to think of what that list is. These are hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, and imprisoned. What if the reason they are the least of these is due to really bad decisions on their part? What if they are naked, hungry, thirsty, and imprisoned because they made bad choices? Have we ever considered that? It's not just orphans and widows that you know, were bereft, you know, not because of a decision they made. But what if it's someone like Elizabeth Bentley? that actually is in a very desperate place and has no one to speak for, no one to protect her. She has no money. She's going to write a book and she's going to exaggerate her story, which is going to do her in because she wants it to sell. She has nothing. And then it's going to be exposed that she's been exaggerating and it only gets worse for her. Now everything she's ever said is a lie. This poor lady is hanging on a tree rejected of earth and in her mind, rejected of heaven. She has nothing. Even the job that she has, she is going to lose because of her past. Is there a place of refuge for Elizabeth Bentley? I doubt anyone in American history has probably ever given a message about Elizabeth Bentley. (laughs) And yet, this is precisely on God's heart. That's probably why it's on mine. That God cares about Elizabeth Bentley. Even all these years later. The accursed... The accursed isn't Elizabeth Bentley. You know who the accursed is? It's Jesus. He is going to hang on that tree and be rejected of earth and rejected of heaven for us. He is going to do that work for us so that he can become a mercy place for us. He is going to take what we deserve so that we don't receive what we deserve. You know what we end up getting? This is going to be amazing. He gets what we deserve. You know what we get? We get what he deserves. Uh, That's quite a swap, guys. What does he deserve? Exaltation, a place at the right hand of majesty, the inheritance of the kingdom. Uh, Wait a minute. So I don't get what I deserve, which is to be accursed. Instead, I get what he deserves. I get to be called a son, or as some of the ladies in here, a daughter of the Most High. I get to be brought near And all the wealth of heaven is given to me. But I'm I'm no better than Elizabeth Bentley or George Dash. And yet God has seen fit to give me an opportunity to escape from my sin. No matter how dark, no matter how devious, no matter how clandestine. So that I could be set free from the penalty that is associated with it. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The mercy space, you know who that is? That's Jesus. When we come to Jesus, he is our city of refuge. I don't know if you've ever figured that one out. But where do we go? In our life, he has set himself there to say, come to me and I will preserve you. But Lord, you're God. You actually see all my sin. I don't want to come to you. He's actually mercy because of what Jesus Christ has done. He is able to wash us. He is able to cleanse us. He is able to redeem that which the enemy is meant to harm. He is able to convert it and turn it into a place of victory. Come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. The city of refuge, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a weird thought to think of him being the city of refuge? That's what he is. Psalm 9.9, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Psalm 62.7-8, in God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Say law. What an amazing statement. The gospel right there. Psalm 142, four through five, look on my right hand and see for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. This is Elizabeth Bentley talking right there. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. See, the one thing Elizabeth Bentley didn't have is the gospel. And that's what should ache, create that ache inside of us. Because all she had was the first portion. Look on my right hand and see there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. But then there is that second portion which we desire everyone to begin to declare. And that is, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Isaiah 4, 6, there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat. For a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Do you guys know who that is that prophecy is fulfilled in? It's a person. It's not a structure, it's a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So here's the question that I have. If Jesus Christ is a mercy place, is a mercy space, is a city of refuge, who are we? What, what are, what's our role? We are called the body of Christ. In a strange way, we become a tabernacle, a shelter from the heat. We should be the ones, even in the midst of a 1948 drama of anti-communist hysteria, that an Elizabeth Bentley can find a refuge with us. That we will love her and we will care for her, even if the world says, what are you, a lover of communists? That we would give shelter for her soul and we would provide her with truth and give her the balm of Gilead in the midst of such trial. Becoming a rescue shelter back in 1999 going into 2000. I don't know if you guys remember uh, that whole Y2K uh, drama. Some of you weren't even born, which is hard to uh, even imagine. It was a huge deal and no one knew what was gonna happen. Was the world gonna blow up when, when the clock turned from you know, 12 or, well, December 31st of 1999 12, you know, or 11.59 uh, p.m. to, whoa, it's midnight, oh, what's gonna happen? Nothing. Nothing happened. And what's funny is I remember this, even though it's hard to prove it. I remember focus and the family, issuing a statement to Colorado Springs that in the event that the power goes out, this is the middle of winter, right? That they are set up to receive people in need. If you need warmth or you need food. And I was so blessed by that because I was like, that's Christianity right there. That in the midst of the unknown, that you could say, by the way, if you ever need a place in the midst of this unknown, I want to open up our doors for you. We're set up for that. So I was on the radio show, and I said, guys, I just want to acknowledge something. I want to say thank you for what you guys did in 1999. They're looking at each other. And, uh, And they're like, oh, yeah, they had no idea what I was talking about. Come to find out, they didn't do that. And they were like, yeah, that really would have been a good idea for us to do. Thank you, Eric, for bringing it up. And I'm like, well, how did I have the thought? And then they didn't even do it. So it's funny. It was very awkward. Then they had to announce it on their program that they didn't do that. How awkward is that? Uh, it's like, yeah, we should have been like Christ, but we weren't. Uh, and yet for all of us, that's a vision I want us to begin to catch. I want us to be a rescue shelter for Elizabeth Bentley's and George Dashes. Because God has been a rescue shelter for us. Let's make sure that those that right now are hearing only the condemnation of Jesus and that they are worthless and there's no good in their life and they're struggling with even trying to figure out if they should just walk out in front of traffic and get it over with. That we are willing to be there to say, your life has value. Come under this shelter, this banner of mercy and grace and receive the hope and the love of Jesus. That is not an endorsement of getting on a ship to Tarshish. That's not an endorsement of going to Tarshish. That is saying that anyone who goes to Tarshish, there is still hope. And no matter where you're at in that journey, it is a place of victory right now, today, if you will take your God up on it. Listen to this, guys, Psalm 99. This is our God. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. What if you turn that into your calling? The church of Jesus Christ also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. I like that. I think it stirs inside of you the same way it does in me. It's like that's what we haven't been, and that's what we must be. Father, do this work in us. Build us into mercy spaces, mercy places, refuge locations for those that are in Elizabeth Bentley's circumstance. Lord Jesus, you have shown such mercy to each of us. Lord Jesus, may we be mercy givers too. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen.